Yes, the machines. This is a race with the machines. From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Angus Fletcher has dual degrees in neuroscience and literature. He is a professor of story science at Ohio State's Project Narrative, the world's leading academic think tank for the study of stories. His research employs a mix of laboratory experiment, literary history and rhetorical theory to explore the psychological effects, cognitive, behavioral, therapeutic, of different narrative technologies. The title of his talk today is The Brain and Narratives, The Limits of AI. Well, do you want me to do you want me to start by saying a few of my oddest and most unusual ideas, and then we can maybe kind of get into those, and you can kind of interrogate me about them. So, so my background very quickly is I started out in neuroscience when, and I worked in a neuroscience lab where we were specifically working on neurophysiology, so basically how brain cells talk to each other. And this was about 20 years ago or so. And, and at that time, everyone in the lab thought that the brain was basically a computer. It thought that neurons were basically on off binary switches. And it thought that the language of the brain was some version of symbolic logic. And it thought that overall the brain was a sense making uh, information processor. So it would take in data through the eyes and through other senses. It would store that data in the memory. It would process that data to make decisions. And, you know, occasionally kind of weird things would happen, like emotions would come in and they would disrupt the normal functioning of the system. And you sort of had to figure out how to troubleshoot all that to get the brain to work properly and be more rational. So that was the kind of thought process that we had in the lab. And, you know, the more I worked and the more I did research, the more I became very skeptical of the view that the human brain operated like a computer. As I'll talk about, or I can talk about, there are definitely computational parts of the human brain, in particular the visual cortex, and there are some other parts of the brains that are very definitely running symbolic logic. But most of the human brain doesn't run logic. Um, it runs other things. Um, and many of the things that we think of as a negative from the perspective of logic are in fact very positive from the perspective of humans and our performance. So, you know, take a few obvious examples, curiosity, empathy, love, courage. These are all very, very positive things or potentially positive things in, in human life and human society. And so the kind of question that I had in my mind was how are these other parts of the brain working? Uh, how is it even possible for a brain to be non-computational? What would that even mean? Because at the time, the only idea we had for thought was some version of, of, of computation, of data, information being moved around through circuits and whatnot. And so I basically have gone on this odyssey over the last 20 years, which has carried me, as, as, as some of you may know, um, to, among other things, get a PhD in Shakespeare, to work a lot with places like Pixar and Hollywood, to with special forces, um, to work a lot with AI and kind of the technology community, and to do a whole variety of other things. And the core of all that work has really been these questions about uh, where, how does emotion work in the brain? How does creativity work in the brain? And overall, if we think of the brain not as a computer, but as a machine for doing something else, so not magical, not mystical, not the product of consciousness or, or, or anything kind of supernatural, but as a machine, if we think of it as a machine for doing these other things, how do we improve the performance of that machine? What are the practical ways that we can make human beings kinder? What are the practical ways that we can make human beings more empathetic? What are the practical ways that we can make human beings braver? And what are the practical ways that we can make human beings more resilient, helping them process trauma and grief faster and do all these kinds of things? And it's that work that has carried me to work not just with elementary students and college students and business folk um, and technologists, but also most recently with the Army Nursing Corps and with the Special Operations Community in the United States. So, you know, um, you know, teams like the Green Berets and Delta Force and things like that, part of the Army's uh, Special Operations Command. So that's the kind of big thing about me. And the thing that makes me, uh, some people think that it makes me clever and some people think it makes me insane, is my answers <laughs> to these questions. And 
Um, you know, the big answer that I have to these questions is that the human brain, uh, when it's not running logic, is running narrative. And narrative is not the same as logic, and they cannot be exchanged. And we can get into that for reasons that you, if you'd like to talk about. They're just completely different ontological things, and they require different machineries. So they're just as different as a hammer and a saw, basically. They're just two things that just don't, don't go together. And narrative um, is basically uh, about actions and stringing actions together. And so it came largely out of the motor parts of the human brain, the motor cortex, and those parts of the brain are largely not conscious. And that's why a lot of creativity and a lot of emotion, a lot of other things seem to bubble up out of nowhere into our brain because they originate in these deep action centers of the human brain. That's why a lot of times when you have a good idea or a sudden epiphany or an intuition, I heard somebody talk about that they're studying intuition or you know, unconscious things, you know, what, what we would think of, you know, um, you know what other earlier generations of psychologists might've thought of as the unconscious, what I would call the non-conscious, you know, those things bubble up out of these motor regions of the brain and they're very dynamic. Um, and so a big part of my work is sort of uncovering how those work. And one of the ways I uncover how those work is through literature because literature is a technology of narrative, of story. And we know that certain stories can be very useful at troubleshooting the human brain. Um, certain kinds of plays like tragedies can help us process grief and trauma. Other kinds of things, certain kinds of songs can give us courage or stimulate curiosity. And so by actually kind of breaking down stories and how they work, we can learn a lot about the technology of the brain and we can then test those ideas by going into science labs and showing that it in fact works. Um, so that's a kind of a, a, a big part of my work. And the other big part of my work, um, and so like I said before, because I work um, with, with you know, military communities and also with doctors and social workers and therapists, um, that work is intended for um, sort of therapeutic uh, primary care in the sense that it, it's basically intended to leverage stories uh, for therapeutic functions and also to kind of improve and boost performance among sort of elite groups. If you can make a brave person even braver, if you can take a curious person to make her even more curious, you know, those are the kinds of things that we do. And then the other thing that makes me highly controversial um, is the fact that I have a proof based on my work with AI, that computers will never be able to do narrative. And because computers will never be able to do narrative, that means that computers can't do 98% of the things the human brain can do. Uh, so they can't plan. They can't make plans or plots or strategize. They can't do science. Um, they can't do most forms of art. Uh, they can do certain kinds of visual art. Um, but they can't do any art that involves kind of a narrative or a story. They can't do any kind of business. Um, they're useless at military strategy, all these kinds of things, because a lot of that comes out of the narrative parts of the brain. And um, this has gotten to be a lot of fights with computer people who are insistent that everything in the world can be reduced to logic. And also people who seem to think that because I'm saying that computers can't do something, therefore I must believe in magic, or that there's this thing in the human brain called consciousness, which explains everything. But actually what I'm saying is that there's a, just a different kind of machine in the human brain, uh, the computers don't have, and we can build that machine. And actually some of my work now is, is potentially with the US Department of Defense to kind of build a of that machine. And um, I probably should end there, but I wanna end by saying that sometimes when I say, well, I'm building a machine that can do things that, uh, that computers can't do and that humans can, people sometimes think, well, Angus, you must be trying to replace humans with another kind of machine instead of a computer. But my point actually is that actually human intelligence involves lots of different machineries. If you can build a machine that does something other than a computer does, what you've really proved is that human intelligence is diverse. And you know, my main point there is to just to get us away from the idea of the singularity or that there's an ultimate kind of intelligence or some kind of superhuman destiny to which we're all going because those are all ideas of logic and enlightenment. And you know, my view is that logic and enlightenment are wonderful and valuable, but they're only one way that intelligence works. And that's why we have romanticism in the Renaissance and all sorts of other kinds of counterculture traditions to kind of fill in the gaps. So I hope that's a good kind of summary of what I do. Um, you know, basically narrative, story, human performance, working with a lot of different communities and, and something of an AI skeptic. And if you have any questions about any of that, I'd love to get into the details or, you know, wander for a few. Oh, yeah, we have questions. Fast, thank you. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, fascinating. That was fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I don't want to take over, but it'll be really easy. But I, I'm just going to throw something, <laughs> a couple of things, and then I'm going to shut up because it's mostly for students to speak to, with you, Angus. 
uh, it makes me think of whether animals then would have narratives because they're able to do a lot of things that human beings are, right? Playfulness and and also makes me think of uh, the book we've uh, we've recently discussed here from a researcher at the University of Montreal called "When the uh, When Brains Dream," uh, where essentially you know one of the main thing on how you learn uh, in REM sleep is through narratives. Yeah, yeah, they're bizarre narratives, but they're narratives nonetheless. And it made me think when I read this book that maybe that's what's missing for AI is the ability to dream actually, uh, but that goes with narrative. So I'm gonna Well, that's fascinating. Well, let me just say very quickly, yes, absolutely. Animals are much smarter than AI to your point. So a weasel is much more intelligent than a computer. And in general, you know, I mean, animals can do pretty much almost all the things that humans can do, only we can do them at scale because our neocortex just has so many more synaptic connections. But I want to make clear that I'm not a proponent of human exceptionalism. I think there's, you know, and there's one of the reasons I'm a vegetarian and I don't eat animals is because I think that animals experience the same feelings as we do, um, have the same emotions, and certainly have the same ability to plan and plot on a more rudimentary level. That's why crows are able to use tools. Um, and to your point about AI not being able to dream, I do agree with that. I don't think AI can dream, at least not in the way that humans would dream. It, it's possible that if AI became conscious, it would have a different kind of dream. It would be a kind of more semiotic associational dream, but it wouldn't have that kind of narrative quality that our dreams have where we're like going somewhere and then something's chasing us and then all the rest of that. All right, thank you. So, Emil, make sure yeah. take over uh, and, and speak aloud so yeah. we can record it. My question and what I was most intrigued about was when you mentioned the, the kind of proof that AI cannot create narrative because that's the, the premise of many of uh, what you said, but is it possible to elaborate on that? Yeah, so first of all, if, you, if you're interested, um, a, a big version of this proof came out actually uh, this month. So I published the proof last year and then a lot of people got upset with me. And so I published a kind of explanation to people's objections that came out this month. And so I'd be happy to forward that to your lab and, and you can read through that in, in, in detail. So um, the proof is quite simple, um, but I, should, I wanna background it by saying that the proof came to me because I was hired to work with um, natural language processors. So things kind of like GPT-3, for those of you who work in AI. Um, and I was basically hired over a period of years because natural language processors famously have this problem dealing with action verbs. And that's so in a, in a logical system, basically everything has to be broken into propositions. And a proposition is one thing that equals another thing. And that's because computers think in, in the language of math, one thing always equals another thing. So for example, if you have the statement, uh, Aristotle walks, that's something that you and I understand immediately, right? Aristotle walks, okay, oh, I understand how that works, Aristotle. Computers can't understand it like that. Computers have to break that into subject and predicate. So Aristotle walking joined with is. So computers always have to break language into their own way of understanding it. The problem is when you break down Aristotle walks into Aristotle is walking, um, you can already see that information is lost because walking just becomes an adjective or a quality that's associated with Aristotle in a perpetual present tense. But there's never any sense that Aristotle is initiating an action. There's no sense of a beginning, right? A cause and an effect, the cause being Aristotle and the effect being the walking. And so this causes just a huge amount of problems for computers. Uh, because they can't understand what's known as causal reasoning, the idea that one thing would cause another thing to happen. The technical reason for this is because computers think in equations, and if I'm going too fast, go, go ahead and slow me down, but computers think in math or, or logic, and logic is uh, one thing equals another thing. So it's the present tense, you know, one thing is another thing. So everything that happens in a computer's mind has to occur in the present tense. When you have a cause and an effect, the cause has to occur before the effect. So if the cause is in the present, the effect has to be in the future. If the effect is in the present, the cause has to be in the past. And so what ends up happening is that computers cannot think in terms of cause and effect um, because they occur at different timestamps. And so to try and think in cause and effect, there's basically only two ways that computers can handle that. One, they can break causation and say a cause equals its effect. And so they could say, for example, fire equals smoke. And so to a computer, if it sees the sign fire, it would say, oh, fire equals smoke. 
The problem with that is that because the cause equals the effect, the effect also equals the cause. So it's a computer, smoke also equals fire. <laughs> that means when a computer sees smoke, right? It says, oh, smoke causes fire. So that's one way computers can handle it. The other way, which is a version of that is known as correlational thinking as opposed to causation. So computers, they take huge amounts of data and they find patterns in it and they associate, they correlate those events with each other. And this allows them, and you can do things like Judea Pearl's do calculus, this allows them to, to say, okay, certain correlations or certain patterns of correlation, I'm going to say that they are associated with other patterns of uh, correlation. So I, as a computer, I'm going to say that this cluster of things causes that cluster of things. But for computers to do that, it requires a huge amount of data. And unlike humans, we can go from a single cause to a single effect by intervening in the cause. And that allows us to manipulate causes and do things like science, where computers are always creating these kinds of clouds and clusters of correlations and trying to leverage them into causal thinking. And this leads to the famous problem, which you're probably aware of, known as fitting the curve, where computers can take huge amounts of past data, you know, famously in politics or something like that, and they'll fit it to a curve. And then the next timestamp will occur and it will just completely break uh, the data points, the data fits, um, because computers have not identified the cause. They've only identified the correlations. So anyway, the proof, very simply, is that computers can only think correlationally. They can only think in terms of one thing is another thing. Uh, narrative is causal. One thing causes another thing. The essence of narrative is action, and action is a cause and its effect. So narrative is at its core causal. And causal and correlational systems are just totally fundamentally different. The correlational systems cannot run causation. So anyway, that's the kind of that's the kind of proof. We can get into more of how the proof works or, or anything like that. But basically, it, it starts with the observation that I think anyone would agree with: the computer simply cannot process language the way that humans do, um, and they have to try and process it another way. And then the moment you realize that computers are processing language differently from humans, you realize that there's something that computers are not doing. And then people who work with computers will say, well, we can somehow figure out another way to somehow do the same thing. But the reality is, is that other way to do the same thing requires vast amounts of data. And usually in life, that data just doesn't exist. And in the case of most things that humans do in terms of causal thinking, that data is totally absent. It just doesn't exist in the world anywhere. So anyway, that's a, that's a kind of summary proof. And again, I can send on more detail if you're interested. I mean, I, I find that quite interesting. And I mean, uh... I, I'm just curious, and of course, I don't know that much about computers and programming and, and all that, but uh, is there still a possibility that computers could get there? It's just that AI right now doesn't work. Or it's just because I, I know computers work a specific way, but for instance, with new types of computing or quantum computing, I don't know anything about it, but like, is there a way it, that could change in the future? So... Uh, well, I'm going to tell you what I think, and then uh, people will tell you that I'm an idiot. So what I think is no. And, you know, the reason I think that is because quantum computing is just another way of building a machine. And a Turing machine is just a giant machine for running symbolic logic. So if symbolic logic cannot do something, a quantum computer cannot do it either. And symbolic logic simply cannot do causational thinking. And, and to kind of give you a kind of broader, say, non-computational way of thinking about this, Symbolic logic has been around for over 2,500 years. It's not a new thing. Uh, it is new that it has been accelerated by computers, but Aristotle invented it exactly in the organon as it exists in computers. Aristotle identified that there were three operations in symbolic logic, and or not. And modern computing has, has, has distilled those down to two operations, NAND, NOR, which are the basis of every computer. But for 2,500 years, symbolic logic has been operating. And no philosopher, from Aristotle, through Frege, through Bertrand Russell, all of whom are brilliant, have ever gotten anywhere towards solving this problem. And in fact, Bertrand Russell, who's the founder of modern analytic philosophy and is probably the smartest person to ever work in symbolic logic ever, famously stated that actually the fact that you couldn't solve the problem proved that causation didn't exist. So basically he said, well, actually, since symbolic logic can't do it, it can't be true um, because there's no way to do it in symbolic logic. Therefore, it's just made up. So there's no indication whatsoever um, that the problem is solvable. And in fact, on the basis of symbolic logic, it isn't. And in terms of human history, 
the last time prior to modern AI that a society went all in on symbolic logic was medieval philosophy. So in the Middle Ages, in the 12th century, Aristotle's organon was rediscovered. And that's what ultimately led to Thomas Aquinas and the Summa Theologica. So medieval philosophy is the, basically the same as modern AI. And what happened to medieval philosophy? It got overthrown by the Renaissance. Why? Because of experiments, because of modern science. Why? Because modern science is all about causal thinking. It's about positing, it's about having a hypothesis about what one, you know, what an intervention in nature will produce. So there's just no indication whatsoever to my mind that the problem is ever gonna be solved. And it would be a little bit like if you said to me, Angus, um, I really wanna saw this piece of wood, but all I have is a hammer. All I have is a hammer. So do you think if I spent a billion, billion years refining this hammer, I could use it to saw this piece of wood? And I would say to you, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just spend 15 minutes to make a saw? <laughs> why would you spend a billion, billion years trying to make a hammer saw a piece of wood? First of all, I think it's unlikely that it would ever do it. And second of all, you know, why not just use another tool? And that's basically what I've just kind of said in my, in my research is instead of trying to get computers to do something that they either cannot do or is so hard for them to do that it might take them hundreds of millions of years to do it, why don't we just build a different kind of machine? Or why don't we just invest in humans and let humans do this thing which humans are good at? So that's kind of my, my stance on the matter. Mm, all right, fascinating. Darius, I'm sure you have something to say. Um, yeah, on, on the same sure, yeah. On the same topic, because um, um, when I think about like the problems with uh, with uh, you know text completion AI or like GPT-3, for example. Uh, like to me, it seems that what it's lacking is like a grounding for language, because because for us, like language is an extension of uh, the rest of our experience, and it's a way of like referring to aspects of our experience. Um, but for that AI, uh, language is just its entire world, so it doesn't have those reference. It doesn't have like an existence besides language. Um, so I would kind of think that like the problem of, of like an AI writing a coherent story, for example, is kind of like the AGI problem, like creating an AI that's general enough that it can absorb the reference as well as the construct of language. Um, and for me, that seems possible. And um, in terms of what you said about, about symbolic logic, not being able to accomplish that, I, 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 seems that seems plausible to me but um like artificial neural nets can can do fuzzy logic right would you agree oh yes no absolutely of course yeah and much better than humans can do it yeah no there's no question i mean they're much better at bayesian statistics than we are so to, to your earlier point so first of all i'm not a computer skeptic in the sense that i don't think computers are amazing <laughs> you know i spent a lot of time working with them i think they're wonderful and extraordinary and i think the kind of breakthroughs we've made in hardware over the last 50 years are just mind-blowing. You know, the MOS transistor, all this kind of stuff is, is stunning. But your earlier point about language being about context, that's what I was taught. And it's wrong. <laughs> that, that, is the, that is the major error of understanding how language works. Um, you know, we're taught that basically, it's, it's because of the rise of modern semiotics, basically. And modern semiotics is nothing other than the application of logic to language. And so anytime you get into semiotic theory, you're already seeding the groundwork to logic and you're getting caught in this logical way of thinking about everything. And it just ends up in circularity as we know from deconstruction and all these other kind of 20th century movements, um, semiotics just doesn't work. <laughs> it totally fails. And, and the reason that it fails is it turns out the human brain does not actually learn through context. It learns through doing. So I'm gonna give you a simple different way of thinking about the origins of language and where it comes from. Um, so of course, in semiotics, there's this idea that it's this kind of referential system and we have all this context and so on and so forth. But the common sense explanation for the origin of language is that it's a memory tool. And we know that written language evolved about 5,000 years ago to record stuff. So basically something would happen and humans wanted to remember it. And what did humans want to remember? Well, they wanted to remember treaties between you know, one, one um, 
you know, one sort of political group wanted to remember the fact that there had been a, a treaty agreed, or they wanted to remember cargo transactions, or they wanted to remember literature. And particularly they wanted to remember literature because usually literature was bound up in myth and religion and priests wanted to kind of maintain this body of sacred texts of hymns and legends and so on and so forth. So the origins of written language, um, the kind of symbol system that we think of as being language, uh, evolved about 5,000 years ago to remember things, not to represent things. And that's a crucial difference. If you were developing a system to represent things, then the system would itself have to contain everything. But if you're just using something to remember, all it has to do is prompt the human brain. And in the case of the human brain, there are three major things that we find in literature, uh, excuse me, in language. There are nouns, there are adjectives, and there are verbs. Nouns and adjectives both refer to things that just exist in space. So green or table or something like that. And that means that language itself can not only be a memory aid, but can actually represent them because language itself exists in space. So if you write the word green on a piece of paper, that can literally and effectively refer to something that's green. If you write table, that can literally and effectively refer to a table. However, verbs exist in time. And this goes back to the problem that I was saying before, that computers can only think in the present tense. Verbs exist in time. So if you're gonna to think to yourself, how do I have a symbolic representation of a verb? Let's take the example of running, of, of someone running. How would you have a symbolic representation of someone running? Well, you'd have maybe a stick figure and you maybe have the legs kind of spread apart, you know, and you would put that down. And you'd say, oh, that's a representation of running but it's not a representation of running because it could also just as easily be a representation of someone with their legs spread. The only way to make it representative is you would then have to add a second picture next to it with the legs in a different position, right? And you say, oh, now I've got these two pictures and together they represent running, except for the fact that the actual running doesn't occur in either one of the pictures, right? Because in each of the pictures, it's just a person frozen with their legs in a different position. The running actually happens in the gap between the pictures. And what this means is that language is never able to represent action. It's only able to be a memorial prompt to a human brain, which has a narrative processor in it, which can actually act. And so this is the fundamental problem with computers. It's not that they don't have enough data. A child, a four-year-old has very little data in her head, but she's able to immediately understand a verb running. Why? Because she has a narrative processor in her head. And the issue that we're having with computers now is we're trying to make them do something they can't do, which is cruel to computers. I mean, can you imagine if you, if you took someone who couldn't see and they just kept insisting that they see something? I mean, and they're like, if you just keep looking at it long enough, you're gonna see it. And it's like, no, they don't actually have the hardware to see. Or in the case of the computer, they don't have the hardware to process verbs. And that's why if we want to actually do this stuff, we would have to build a different kind of technology rather than going back round and round and round in this circle because it's never gonna go anywhere. It hasn't gone anywhere in 2,500 years. And we have computers now that have way more memory than any human, way more processing power than any human, and yet still cannot do things that four-year-olds can do. And that's because there's a fundamental mechanism missing in them not because there is some kind of moment where we're gonna give them enough data and then suddenly artificial general intelligence is gonna ensue. I like what you said about them not having like, you know, it, uh, how they represent an action. And um, I think some people along that line have like suggested that, you know, embodiment is, would be important for like at least accelerating AGI. So like giving it a body and basically having a, a physical robot form that can do things and then the AI inhabiting it, uh, so to speak. Um, do you think that would, is that what you're alluding to in terms of like different kinds of machines or is it something else? Well, I mean, yes, to the extent that if you had a robot, the robot itself could understand movements because its arms and legs would be moving. It would be a machine, but a computer attached to the robot would be no, wouldn't be able to understand movement at all because the computer has that hardware limitation. What you would have to do is you'd have to build a different kind of thinking processor and attach it to the robot, because that's what we humans have in our brain. Our, our brain we're not computers attached to a body. We're a different kind of processor 
attached to a body. And that's the problem. And so absolutely embodiment is part of the answer because a four-year-old understands action because she moves her body. But people who are paralyzed can also imagine motion. It's not a requirement that you have a body to move. And that's because ultimately the origins of all these motor processes are in the brain, not in the body. And so even though the body can help fill out those things, it's those motor regions of the brain. So anyway, I'm making a hard claim here and I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable making this claim because it's a claim I arrived at. I actually was in your position five years ago. And I just, over time, like beating my head against this problem was forced to realize as you sometimes do, that a problem is unsolvable. Um, I mean, this is essentially what Turing does in his 1936 paper, which I'm sure you've read about the halting problem. You know, he spent a lot of time trying to solve the halting problem and he's like, it's unsolvable. And by realizing that it was unsolvable, he invented the computer. And I think by acknowledging that this problem is unsolvable, we're gonna invent a new kind of technology. And that's one of the reasons I'm so gung-ho about it is because I think that there's an opportunity here to stop kind of investing so much wasted energy in computers and instead start to think about other things such as new kinds of machinery or also, again, as I said before, different kinds of human systems. Because, I mean, there's a lot of humans on this planet who are underused, you know, and, uh, you know, grow up in, in conditions of, you know, of poverty and neglect. And, you know, a lot of those humans might hold the answers to a lot of our problems more so, I think, than, you know, more computers. Well, Anita and Igu? Okay, so it's because you're making a hard claim that it's really hard not to dissect it in one's brain. So I don't mean for this to be an annoying question, but actually, Emil, when you brought up quantum computing, then I started to think, well, what could a superposition of inputs within one state lead to? And when you talked about the action idea, I thought, well, you could have the superposition of several different states of motion simultaneously. And could that potentially allow a quantum computer to represent narrative? Well, okay, so two things here. You, you don't need a quantum computer to do that. Regular computers can already do that. Um, and what you're basically talking about is you're talking about caching out actions into sets, which is how computers think, you know, just like a whole group of, of, of representations. And of course, a computer can represent a narrative. A computer can represent a narrative because language can represent a narrative, but a computer cannot use a narrative <laughs> because the representation is not the narrative itself. It has a different mechanism in it. All the representation can do is go around in terms of symbolic logic. So what you're talking about is what Judea Pearl does in his do calculus, which is, a, which is a wonderful and effective thing, but the do calculus does not actually allow you to generate narrative. Do you wanna follow up? Do you yeah, and then I should stop because uh, I think it's I think it, it's 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 asking the same question. But in that way, couldn't the representation be the narrative? Can't you build, I mean, a really complex data-heavy set of narratives that are the representation? So representation and narrative. And again, I'll be happy to send the um, the 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 proof over to you and kind of through some of these things. But there's a couple of tricky things happening here. First of all, we have been taught for the last hundred years that literature and narrative and all these things are representation. And, you know, we go to school and we learn things like close reading and we learn how to kind of break, uh, you know, literature down into symbols and whatnot and representations. And then we learn to interpret it for themes. Interpretation, by the way, is another computer activity. Aristotle talks about it on hermeneutics. It's another logic activity. So we've been trained for the last hundred years to misunderstand stories as representations. I mean, that's a big part of the problem. But actually, stories are not representational. Stories are a tool. They're a technology for doing something. So the equivalent example here would be, um, if I said to you, um, could a computer create infinite representations of the workings of a rocket ship or something like that? You would probably say yes. And then I would say, well, could it then string together all those representations into a sequence of events? And then you would probably say yes, and I would say yes. And then I would say to you, could the computer then launch itself to Mars? And you would say, well, no, of course it couldn't. The computer couldn't launch itself to Mars because it would just have representations of all these things inside it. And so what I'm saying to you is, yes, it can represent things endlessly, but it can't use them. It can't do them. Um, it can't understand them. It can't process them. It can't troubleshoot them uh, because the representation is different from the thing itself. So unless you think that a rocket ship is a series of representations 
as opposed to a machine. Um, unless you think that the human heart is a series of representations instead of a machine, then, then no represent, representational processor can ever do any more than create a series of photographs of that thing. But the photographs are not the same as the thing. In the same way that a movie, when you watch a movie, <laughs> does not actually contain people in it. Nor, if you took a movie, could you think as those people think. Because really what you have is a series of frozen frames that are just kind of, you know, uh, spun with enough speed so the human eye mistakes them as actually being the things themselves. So what we're talking about is a completely different ontological thing. Um, and so I completely agree with you that computers could represent anything that they want to, but by representing something, it doesn't mean that they could predict what it does or understand how it works or actually do the thing itself. Um, so that's, that's my claim. But again, you know, I mean, uh, plenty of people think I'm nuts for thinking that. <laughs> Okay, I think I was next. Um, yes. I, I, I totally agree with you. The fact that like stories and representations are really different tools. And it really frustrates me sometimes when I talk about poetry and someone says, oh, I made a machine learning program that can write poems. I'm like, it's not the same thing. Um, and um, like, there is a really good re uh, real life proof of how uh, computer representations like can never reach human problem solving is that online exams that McGill gives us in the science department, we have all our notes open, we can have Google open. However, you can still get 60% because they ask questions like solving cases or like writing essays. If you're not able to like explain um, why it matters to, to, for example, eat sugar before you go on a run, then um, <laughs> like it doesn't matter if you know the exact pathway and the name of all the enzymes. Um, it just doesn't work that you don't know how to do um, things. So that's also why um, deuce ex machina won't happen because computers don't have the motivation to um, use things to like computers they're a means and not ends in themselves kind of that that um is a a good understanding of yes okay yes well first of all can i hire you to be my minister of propaganda i would love it if you could consider so much more eloquent and persuasive than i am absolutely yes and um yes yeah to your to your point i mean yes no amount of data will allow you to solve problems data and problem solving are different activities um, you know, and all computers are, which is wonderful, are giant statistics machines. And we've somehow misunderstood the fact that computers are giant statistics machines with the idea that computers can do science and do other things. And famously, science is a very low data activity. Uh, and we know this going all the way back to um, the 19th century. There's a famous, uh, uh, basically, you know, John Herschel, who is this, who basically gives us the break with medieval science. He says, no amount of data would allow you to predict a heliocentric as opposed to a geocentric system because math, you can model both of them. What allows you to do it is this hypothesis about which one comes first and is propelling the other and then you can kind of test that hypothesis by intervening in the system in various ways and creating orbits and so on and so forth. So first of all, that's completely correct. Second of all, this, this thing about you know, computer volition. Yes, I mean, computers don't have a desire to do anything. Um, you know, which is great on a certain level, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, we turn them on and we tell them what to do. And if we don't tell them to do something, they don't do it. Uh, that, and that's again, because we came to be in a dynamic environment where we needed to survive and we needed to get things. And that's what led to this kind of causal thinking in our brains and in the brains of animals is we realized, okay, I have to intervene in my environment and see what works. And that's what produces learning. And computers have no motivation to learn whatsoever. They only are happy to observe and do what we tell them with the information that they gather. So of course, ex machina would never happen. None of these things um, would ever happen. And you know, this whole thing about computers producing poetry um, and whatnot, a lot of this I think is, um, there's, this, there's this desire among computer people, which I just don't understand to go beyond saying a computer is amazing, a wonderful thing, to being like a computer is everything. <laughs> 
It is everything, you know, there's nothing other than the computer. And I just feel it's just, I mean, you know, you sometimes get the same thing with people who are really into anything, you know, they'll be like, you know, it's not just like money is useful. It's like money is everything. Capitalism is everything. You know, it's all capitalism or whatever, you know, and, and this is just the danger of this kind of like bizarre extremism. I mean, you can imagine if, if, you know, if I, if I, you know, was in living in the middle ages and I liked a hammer and I went around trying to convince everyone that the hammer was everything and it was, the, you know, and it could do everything, you know, you know, or if you have a friend who really loves a particular movie or book, you know, and he's going around trying to convince you, this is the only thing that anyone needs to read, you know, this is the Bible. Um, and I just think that, you know, really, when you look around life, life is about diversity. Um, the reason that life is about diversity is probably because it's more fun and joyful that way, but also because that's how life survives. Um, you know, we live in a very complicated world. Uh, life itself, biologically, evolutionarily, has always tended towards diversity. That's why there's so many different species on this planet that live in fundamentally different ways. I mean, the way we live is very different from the way the bacteria live. It's different from the way the plants live. You know, there's just a huge diversity because problem solving and the way that we solve problems are, you know, driven by these kinds of mechanical processes that unlike computation, don't have linear single absolute answers. Um, so anyway, anyway, anytime someone comes in and says, oh, a computer can do poetry, oh, a computer can do this, oh, a computer can do anything, you can be almost sure that that person believes that someday that computer is going to upload us all into its head and is going to become God, <laughs> because that's basically what the person is saying. So, okay, so I find everything that's absolutely fascinating. I love it. So, it, it, so my, my thought process is not as, uh, as, as well defined as yours. So I, a couple of thoughts here, random. Uh, uh, system, you know, thinking is essentially what philosophy does, right? So this is how the world is explained, right? So it is this or it is that. But that's just a, a bit of an aside. So I was thinking a couple of things here. Uh, last week, actually, we had a discussion on exactly the same thing. Can a computer write poetry? So we had an interesting <laughs> conversation on exactly that topic. And we discussed, uh, we discussed intention, we discussed all of these things. So the one thing also we said is that GPT-3, for example, that, you know, most of the time uh, creates random, uninteresting things, sometimes comes up with something that we find interesting. But it's like a resonance of humanity, right? Because it's based on the text we have produced. We have produced. But mostly, what I want to say here is a couple of things: is is poetry? You said so. Poetry is, if I if I follow you well, Angus. So the narrative of poetry is a way for us to solve some issues that are related to the physical world in a way. Is that, am I am I right? I'm thinking this and summarizing, yes, summarizing I mean, poetry, this. I mean, poetry can be used. I mean, poetry is the least narrative of all literature. Right, right. But literature, let's say, let, narratives are essentially a way for yeah. us to solve. Okay. But yeah. could poetry be a, a representation of a representation in the sense that it is trying to solve a problem which is emotional and mental? which by itself in a way is a representation, even though it does have impact on the physical world. So it's different from a story. Am I, am I making sense here? You are making sense to me, but I mean, I guess what I would say to you is a medicine, a representation. I mean, if I gave you a pill right now, you know, if I gave, you know, if I, if I, if I gave myself an antidepressant or something right now, would I be giving myself a representation of an antidepressant? I mean, you could say at a certain level, well, I mean, there might be a representation carved on the, say, you know, whatever the name of the drug was on it or something like that. But the pill itself would not be a representation. It would be a mechanical object. It would be a chemical that, that interacted with the chemicals in my brain. But, but poetry is, is, is also a way to address my own representation of myself. That that's well, it could be, it could be, but I mean, I mean, so there's different things that literature can do. I mean, one thing that a, a literature could do is it could make you self-conscious and consciously interrogate yourself. And I think that's a lot about the way we talk about poetry in um, literature classrooms. But I mean, a poem could also just make you cry. It can just make you cry. You can just read a poem, you can just cry. And there's never any moment while you're crying that you're having a representation of yourself in your head. There's just a mechanical effect that, that, that's happening. A poem can just make you happy. Um, so. I don't want to deny that representation occurs in the human brain, because again, as I said, there are computational parts of the human brain, including the visual cortex and logic centers. So representation is something the human brain can do. It's just that not everything the human brain does is representational. And it's those non-representational parts that explain the other things in literature that we're missing. 
and the computers can't do. So I'm not making a hard claim against representation. I'm making a both and claim. And I'm saying that computers don't have the both, <laughs> they just have the one. So the last one is just a thought again. Uh, you mentioned that the verb, verb are action in time, right? So they, 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 they extend in time. Uh, but my, my question is the notion, and I know animals have a notion of time, we agree, right? It's probably a bit different from ours, but they have to have a notion of time because they predict, they react, they anticipate, uh, they see winter coming, et cetera. Okay, but our own notion of time, is it based on language? In the sense that is it, at that point, it's a bit self-referential in a way, right? Because to have a notion of time, you need to have a notion of the future and a notion of the past, right? So time is essentially also our own ability to project ourselves in the narrative in the future and think of the narrative of the past. So I'm just thinking whether time itself, it's, it's, a, it's a chicken and egg question, right? So is, is time the result of language, does time comes the perception of time? Does it come before language, before the verb? Okay, so it's, it's 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 not clear in my head. I'm just I'm just spewing okay. thoughts. <laughs> so I'm going to say a bunch of further crazy things. Again, which again, you know, mark me out as 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 someone who you know you know thinks a particular way. But I don't think that language is responsible for our understanding of time. I think that's a misunderstanding what language is. Um, you know, language, one of the things that's happened over the 20th century is because of the rise of analytic philosophy, which is a language-based philosophy, we've got ourselves into this view that somehow all thought is language and that it's, you know, and that all thought must be language. But all of us are capable all the time of having thoughts that aren't linguistic. You know, I mean, you know, you can suddenly um, have an impulse, you know, or, or, or feel an attraction to another person, you know, um, or whatever, you know, and these are all things that are happening in your brain that are not language. So I think the thing is, is that language is an enormously powerful tool, which has helped us clarify and advance and accelerate certain things. So I think we have a much more precise understanding of time because of language. Um, and because of other instruments. So there's no question that language is very, very useful, but we don't need language to have a concept of time. And in fact, it's almost certain that time evolved uh, hundreds of millions of years ago in neurons as a way to coordinate muscle actions. Because in a lot of ancient animals, you basically had to figure out how am I gonna contract these muscles in a sequence so that I propel myself you know, if I'm a jellyfish and I have to squirt water out, you know, how do I contract these muscles to go forward? Um, and if we didn't, if, if it wasn't able to coordinate those movements, it would just do it all randomly and it would just flop around and it would never get anywhere, you know? So the muscles had to learn to work in sequence. They had to learn one, then the other, then the other, then the other, then the other. And they had to learn how to take a pause. And they also had to learn how to accelerate at certain moments. So these are non-conscious time, you know, these neurons weren't self-aware but they were still using time or they were still thinking temporally. And then what happens over time, uh, you know, is that layers and layers of neurons pack onto other layers of neurons. And we start to become aware more and self-reflexive more. And then we start to be more conscious literally of time as time. But these are all just emergences. They're not a kind of radical new thing. Um, and language is part of that because language is a tool. But language itself doesn't originate time. And again, I would say like the kind of deeper thing here is that plus philosophy has become so language-based and because philosophy is obsessed with metaphysics and the beginning of things, therefore you get yourself very quickly into this idea that well, language, because language is the first time that I've named something and this is the first time I've had a, a thought about it, you know, I'm thinking intentionally and I think intentionally in language, therefore the thought itself is actually creating time or something like that. But that's not the case um, any more than a forest doesn't exist if you don't photograph it, right? I mean, I mean, does the forest exist if you don't photograph it? I think that it does. Um, obviously, the photograph is a way of, of doing interesting things with the forest and passing on that knowledge and recording that knowledge and maybe helping to dissect the forest, new things. But I don't think the photograph creates the forest. Uh, to me, that is to, to kind of jump outside of a kind of biological understanding of the world and launch ourselves into kind of 19th century German idealism or something like that. So I have a question related to emotions. So in the like neuroscience of emotion field, um, you know, the usual way to go about it is we have the basic emotions and somehow we get to complex emotions. And even though the idea of basic emotions may be 
contentious. Um, I think they're easier to explain in terms of action, like the drive to find food or you know, the, the need to sort of run away from prey and that would be fear. Um, and like right now I'm thinking more complex emotions may require um, more associations and representations, which are things that computers can do. Um, how would you personally think about like how we get to complex emotions? Yeah, so first of all, I agree with you. I think that, I mean, first of all, emotion is a very complicated question. And it is clear that on some level, there are some root elements, something basic in emotion. And it's also clear that emotion can be very, very complex and variable. And there can be lots of degrees and kind of flavors in emotion and all these kinds of things. And how you get from one to the other is, is just a fascinating question. Um, so my answer, of course, because as you've discovered in this talk, I'm a complete monomaniac and I trace everything in the human brain back to narrative. <laughs> My answer is that the, the way that you get these variances in emotions is through narrative. Um, and narrative is what allows you to position, frame, direct, intensify emotions. So, um, you know, for example, if you feel fear and your narrative is, I have to get out of here immediately, you know, like run this way, you know, that, that's a very intense emotion. Um, if the narrative is, you know, wait and see, then all of a sudden the fear is not actually intense fear, it's more suspense or maybe even curiosity. And so I think it's the relationship between fear and narrative, because again, narrative, when you think about what, what emotions evolved to do, they didn't evolve to map the world. This is another kind of computer problem. Computers think that, that life is about mapping the world. Actually, the brain is about, it's a muscle that's about keeping us alive. <laughs> and it's about basically saying, do this or do that, or don't do this other thing. So the purpose for emotions on some level is to motivate behavior, is to drive us to do something. And so the emotion is the push and the narrative is the specific direction that the push carries us in. And so it's the relationship between the two of them, I think that produces a lot of the complexity in the system uh, because basically, you know, the action is constantly pushing back against the emotion because the action is like, do I really need to run that fast? Can I run a little bit slower? Should I run left? Should I run right? You know, and so it's the interaction between these two systems, I think, that is producing a lot of that complexity, as opposed to some kind of like knowledge bank in the human brain that's trying to decide, oh, bears are really scary, you know, and squirrels are only lightly scary. Does that make sense? So, so I would say the answer is mostly a narrative. Um, but that's not to say that the, the, the kind of computational thing is irrelevant or would, would not yield anything interesting. I just think that narrative is more primarily associated with emotion. And that's why narratives are so effective at generating emotion. And that's why most emotions lead to narrative. So I would say that maybe my advice would be to kind of focus on that partnership as well. So from my understanding of like the difference between the computer and the human is just computer is more of a representation and it doesn't really has a motivation to cause something uh, by itself, but then human has like the motivation. So my question is just, as you mentioned, like if we have like another mechanism, like in like implemented on the computer, let's say like an embodiment or something, do you think that like from our technology or even like years later, do you think that can like be true? like? that can come true by human. Yeah, I think I understand what you're asking. I mean, I think basically what you're asking is if we could keep building machine parts and attaching them to the computer that did things that the computer can't do but the human brain can do, could we eventually build a machine that thinks like a human brain? And my answer would be yes. <laughs> and my answer would be yes, because I mean, a human brain is just a machine. I mean, I'm not here to say that there's something magic about humans. I mean, I think in a way the magic is the fact that it's not magic. I mean, whenever I meet someone in this world who's just an amazing human being, I'm amazed that they can be that amazing because, you know, I mean, we're a machine. And how is it on earth that a machine can be so creative, so imaginative, so kind, so generous? You know, to me, that's actually the magic. Um, if that person actually was magic, well, it wouldn't be that special because magic is always magic. Um, so, yes, I do think we can build a machine that, that, that is like the, the human brain. My question to people always when they ask me that is, though, is, is why? I mean, there are already so many humans on this planet, and so many of them are just not having the opportunities that they should have to be able to flourish and grow into their full selves, you know? And, you know, why I'm, while I am completely open to techno technology, and I think technology is a wonderful thing, and I don't have any objection whatsoever, 
to advances in technology. I just, I don't understand the benefits to building a machine that just does what a human does already um, when we have lots of humans. And, you know, it seems like it would be better to invest in educating those humans and giving them opportunities and giving them spaces to grow sort of like you guys have, you know. Um, I mean, you can imagine if I was the government and I was like, oh, it's so inefficient to train humans. Let's tear down McGill University and instead just build a machine there that thinks like humans, you know, and then we would have all these machines just like going around inventing things and doing things. And, you know, that would be fine. I mean, I wouldn't have a problem with it, but, but why do that when the people that you meet in your life are already capable of extraordinary imagination, extraordinary courage, all the things that any machine would ever be capable of doing. I mean, there's nothing that, that, that a machine can do that a human couldn't do when we're at our best. So why not focus at making us our best and giving us the opportunity to thrive and flourish and be our best selves? I, I definitely agree with you actually in this point. Oh, I definitely agree with you in this point. I think like the reason why many people like, I, I would say like computationalists, they're quite extreme. It's really, I don't know, like a different kind of thinking, a different type of thinking that they, I don't know, they want to fulfill some like extreme thoughts of, of themselves. And yeah, I wouldn't really agree with it. Well, the, the word that you always hear is the word optimization. Optimization. And you know, the whole concept of computing is this idea, and again, this comes to us from logic, that there's a perfect way of doing things. We get this idea from the Enlightenment, we get this idea from the Middle Ages and their idea of God. You know, this idea that somehow if you just boil everything down to a single system, that system will make everything perfect. The problem with that single system is that system has historically generated misogyny, imperialism, uh, race-based thinking. Why? Well, because the system is always like, well, there always has to be one thing that's best. What's the best thing? Well, men must be better than women, you know, or the British Empire must be better than India or whatever. And so it's constantly obsessed with ranking, optimizing, critiquing, all these kinds of things. And really, if you have a diversity view of life, then there just isn't better and worse things. There are just different things. We have to learn and be curious and be open. And, you know, that to me is the big fight I always have with computer people is they just really believe in their hearts that there's one right way of doing things and all these humans are interfering with it. And if we could just get rid of all these humans, you know, then we would achieve the singularity. And, you know, my point is actually, no, the mess, the inefficiency is actually life. That's actually life. And you guys are trying to squeeze the life out of the system. Um, and, you know, maybe you don't like life. Uh, which I get. I mean, life is hard and it's weird. Um, and, you know, maybe you want to do something else and, and we could definitely create a space for you in your own space to do your own thing. But that doesn't mean that you're going to take over the rest of the world and force the rest of the world to conform to what you want to do, because then we're again back to imperialism and the rest. Of it. Yep. Just one final thought. Um, because we, we do not want to think that humans operate in binaries. That's not that's not fitting to what humans can do. Then uh, I, I remember an argument that uh, Valentino Brittenberg brought up in his book, Vehicles. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, it's like analysis versus synthesis. So the best way to understand uh, a, a system of processes is to build it yourself and then see if it outputs the, the behavior you want it, you want to study. Um, but since we, we know we know or we don't that like people don't work in binaries, people don't work in um, like homogeneous components inside a circuit. It's all heterogeneous and like we embrace diversity and all that. How do you think like we should best approach studies of the brain? Oh, that's a wonderful question. So basically, given the fact that human brains are all different, I mean, this is just the thing we know is that every human brain is slightly different from every other human brain. How on earth do we study the brain? Because inevitably, when we study the brain, we're studying the brain. And, and, and you know, how do we kind of produce an understanding of the brain that, that, that allows for all this complexity and all this difference? Well, I think in a way, you've just sort of answered your own question, I hope, which is that we empower curious people to go into the brain and to ask these hard questions and to see if they can make useful generalities. So the idea of a useful generality is something that helps a lot of people do something, um, but doesn't impose that generality on everybody else. So a useful generality would be like, oh, well, for many people who are suffering from trauma, this therapy can be helpful. 
And then it allows people who are suffering from that trauma to try it themselves because it you know, says, here's a kind of general thing about the human brain possibly. But it doesn't mean that we then lock everyone into trauma therapy that forces them to go through that process, right? Because that could be damaging for them. So the basic idea, I think, of the researchers studying the brain, another way to say this is, what are the possibilities of the human brain? What is the potential of the human brain? And you know, how do I get more of that potential out of more people, as opposed to what should the brain be? What is right for the brain? What is normal for the brain? The term normal always drives me berserk. You know, whenever people start talking about like a normal human brain or neurotypical or something like this, no one is neurotypical. There is no neurotypical human brain. Every human brain is its own kind of unique special thing. Having said that, however, we do have to recognize that our society is built in a way that advantages certain people and not others. And, you know, we want to say that that, that that way of thinking provides opportunities for some people, not others. So that's my answer is that we want to think about how research can increase the opportunities for brains, as opposed to think about research as a way to establish a normal, right way for brains to be and then force everything to conform to that. Yes. So outside of Building 21, in my life of uh, a law student that I <laughs> am sometimes, uh, I, I'm interested in, in technology as well and AI. And there's, of course, a lot of debate about how AI could be used in, in, in the law for many different things. But for instance, uh, in court, judicial making and all that stuff, there's a lot of debate about how we could optimize and uh, improve justice, all that stuff. And, and uh, what you talked about really struck me because that's one idea issues coming uh, up with is um, the notion that justice or equity or anything like, it's quite ambitious to, to pretend that you can achieve the, a, a perfect justice or to improve justice or all that. So to me, that sounds quite, quite crazy. Uh, and I'm just interested in knowing what, what you think the relationships are between law and narrative, because the more I study it, I realize it's really important. And for instance, uh, court trials involve a lot of uh, elements of, of, of a play, even where people have roles, they, they come through a process and something comes out and the judge reads a story and all that stuff. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, we really get our word narrative, narratio, from Cicero and his legal uh, uh, views of, of the law. You know, you would, you would basically show up and you would tell a narrative to the jury. So there's no question that, that, that the law is largely narrative and has always kind of been largely narrative, at least in its operation. Um, to your point about justice, I mean, this is the problem. I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that justice exists. Because, you know, um, you know, the, without going into the without going into the, 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 the thousands of years of philosophy, on this, um, there's no evidence that it exists in the world, because, I mean, for example, what might be just for you and I might not be just for the bacteria living in our bodies, right, might, might not be just um, for someone coming 100 years from now who we don't even know. I mean, there's all these infinite just unknowns that make it impossible to even begin trying to compute what actually justice is, if it even exists. And certainly it's beyond the ability of human systems, if justice does exist, to know what that is. It is, of course, possible to identify injustice in an extreme sense, you know? I mean, you can point to two things and say, well, there seems to be something here that's quite unfair. You know, it seems to be quite unfair that this is happening. So at the very least, you can, can identify irregularities in a system. So you can't say that something is right, but you can say, well, there seems to be an indication here that something might be wrong. To that extent, I can imagine an AI might be useful as a kind of troubleshooting thing. I mean, if an AI could go through thousands and thousands of parking tickets, and discover that, in fact, you know, 95% of them were paid by people who lived below the poverty line or something, you might say, hmm, there seems to be an indication here, right, that it's maybe these traffic tickets are unfair. Um, so, you know, when used by humans in these ways to raise questions, I'm not opposed to AI, or I don't think it's terrible, but you're never going to get an AI that you use to replace a judge that somehow is able to discern justice in some kind of Rawlsian sense. You know, you know John Rawls's famous definition of justice, you know, um, you're, you're never gonna get there. So, so I completely agree with you that really all of these things are about kind of like punting our problems onto something else that we imagine is gonna solve them. You know, oh, AI is gonna solve these problems. And the whole thing about our legal system is our legal system has never been about justice, ever. It's always been about resolving conflict. That's different. 
Resolving conflict is different than finding justice. And what is conflict? Conflict is narrative. Conflict is about two opposed actions, you know? Every story begins with a conflict. If you don't have a conflict, you don't have a story. So to your point, the law has always been narrative because it's always been about conflict resolution. It's always been about trying to find the, the narrative which most efficiently resolves that conflict. And you know, juries are just a way of kind of trying to do that in a way, uh, because it allows everyone to kind of wash their hands through the process, whether it's just, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, it has resolved the conflict. We now have a story that we can all tell ourselves about it. So I think it's important to remember that even though we like to pretend, you know, in the Enlightenment and other times that, 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 that the law is about justice, it really is about conflict resolution. And that's, that's a different kind of thing. You've been so generous. I mean, it's been incredible. Thank you so much, Angus. It was fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, no, thank you. So thank you. Yeah. Um, well, look, this has been a joyful experience for me. Thank you so much. Um, and, you know, literally any time. I mean, and if anyone wants to reach out individually with questions or anything else like that, you know, please feel free to do so. And I'd be, you know, more than happy to participate in, in the future in any way that, that you would enjoy. Yeah, yeah. We will reach, reach again to you and uh, we'll do the podcast and stuff and we'll send you links also. Thank you so much, Angus. Yeah, thank right. you very much.